For more information, visit futurebased.org. Hello everyone and a happy new year. After a bit of a break, we are finally back with a new episode from the Beyond Human Relations series of the Future Based podcast with me, your host, Chetna Pai. Today we will be talking less about beyond human and more about really what is human and can we group everything that is beyond that into just one group? In this episode, I will be in conversation with Jelle van Dijk, who is an assistant professor in the Human-Centered Design Group at the University of Twente, the Netherlands. He is amazed by people, who they are, what they do, and what they make. His research is on how to best understand the concept of embodied sense-making in the context of designing physical, digital, interactive technologies. He teaches about this in the master's course, Embodied Interaction. In recent years, he has been involved with designing assistive products for and with autistic people. His aim is to create technology that adds meaning to people's lives as seen from the perspective of their own lived experience and without already assuming set social norms and values. He believes you can only do this through participatory or co-design, and so with his research team, he develops toolkits and methods for that too. He is married, has two sons and two cats, and lives in Utrecht. In his free time, he likes to draw comics and dance salsa. I'm really excited to see how this conversation goes, so let's get into it. Hi, Yella. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's really great to have you on the podcast. So this podcast is called Beyond Human Relations. But one thing we've never really done on this podcast is try to define what human is. Could you maybe tell us about how you define human? Ah, yeah. So that's an interesting question. Hi, Chetana. And nice to talk to you again. So being human is... I. I look at it very experientially. I mean, we all know what what being human is at a very basic common sense day-to-day level, right? Just being, being, I mean, you take your kids to school (laughs) and then that's humans, right? The parents, the children, the teacher, and, and it's all evident. It only becomes a problem when you try to sort of study it scientifically, then, then you get into trouble. Uh, and so maybe this question is mostly a question that is a problem for scientists and philosophers and not for actual humans. They don't have a problem with defining what human, what human is. Of course, now what a lot of, of us human beings are, are struggling with is what is it like to be a good human or what kind of human do I want to be or what is the purpose of all of it? Why are we here in the first place <laughs> and so on? So those are different questions everybody needs to answer. But it's a bit like the question of what is quality? It's a famous question that is explored by this 1970s hippie book called The Zen and the Mo- Art of Motorcycle Maintained by Robert Piercig. He has this whole book on what is quality. And he also says, well, you know what it is. And, and you know it when you see it and you know it when you see bad quality. But once you start to define it, it goes poof. So it's, you don't know you, you don't know it anymore. So I find that very difficult. But so for one thing, what I don't think that it is, is a human is not just a collection of biological cells that consist of atoms, that consist of <laughs> quarks or whatever, and so on. And then all put together and then in creating a brain. And then in that brain, there's activity and then that's supposed to be human i don't think it's that i think we are science has been too much preoccupied focusing on materialist reductionist explanations of human i also don't think it's pure spirit in the in mm. the old cartesian sense like oh it's it's purely mind and and maybe even part of one of, of something heavenly or something like that i don't think it's that no, for me, it's if I look at the philosophers, I'm 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 turning to the pragmatists who just 
say it is what it's it's very much grounded in everyday concerns so being human is is in the end where where you end up when you stop thinking too deeply and analytically about the question so you should sort of return like the maybe it's a zen approach to stop thinking about it and and stay quiet and then feel what is left that's it that's that is human so actually the reason why i picked you yeah you had a really big impact on me when i did your embodied interaction course and everything from that course also went into my thesis and everything (laughs) since then it's always been a thing i keep in the back of my mind and a big part of that is embodied sense making and participatory sense making could you maybe tell the listeners about that a little bit before i ask them more questions about it so they could also get an idea of what we're talking about Sure, sure. Yeah, so I I come from cognitive science, and in cognitive science, traditionally, if you talk about thinking or sense making, so with sense making, I simply mean what we used to be used to call cognition. So making sense of what is going on in a very mundane way. That's what I mean to be clear, because there's other people using the word for other. If you think about that, it used to be something that that took place inside a mind, and the mind was supposed to be in the brain implemented in in a neurochemical activity in the brain. And we needed to find out how that worked, right? That was cognitive science traditionally. And then you had this whole wave of embodied cognition saying, well, actually the body itself and the physical constraints of the body and the way you interact with your environment, that can already give you a lot of information just by just by interacting. So by by starting to do something in the world, you find out about the water. You lost your car keys. You don't really start to think where they are. You just start wandering around and then you suddenly see them. You didn't really solve the problem. Of where are my <laughs> car keys? You just stumble upon them by just walking around. So you, it's, a, it's a lazy way of getting to the answer of things, right? And we do that all the time. Yeah? We organize our external environment so that, such that thinking becomes easier. And more and more, I started to read about that and, and becoming interested in it. And right now, I'm mainly trying to find out what does that mean for design? Because once you once you accept the idea that we are not, our, our core way of making sense of the world is not happening inside, but it's happening in the interaction between us and the, and the outside world, then of course it becomes very relevant for designers because the outside world, that is something we can change, right? I mean, we can also do neurosurgery on the brain and so on. <laughs> Uh, or chem- or or uh, chemicals use drugs and that works too but yeah on the outside is where the products are the things and we are surrounded to a large extent by things that other people have designed for us and we have bought them but not always like at work or in other kinds of public places you have to use the things that other people designed so more and more i also became interested in do we actually have a say in designing our own environment and if not, that is actually quite problematic ethically from a design ethics point of view. If you if you accept that we are more than our insides, but that we sort of extend out into the world, then it means we are before you know it, we are in some way imprisoned, right? Because we 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 have to we have to work with the things that other people designed for us. Is that allowed? Should should people not have much more say in designing the environments mm-hmm. that they that co-define them? Right. So that's that's why I'm also really interested, for example, in methods like participatory design or co-design, all kinds of or do-it-yourself move that's very, very relevant and interesting. So that's, so that's the basic idea of the embodied sense-making. And then you also talked about participatory sense-making. Now, of course, that, that's interesting in the, in the, in the, that's interesting methodologically, 
how can we together, designers and users of products and other stakeholders, how can we together make sense of what we should design? But it's also more broadly about the idea that very often we are in social situations. And there, what you see is that this, this embodied cognition sort of starts to, you create a you create an interaction with the world that helps you make sense of the world. You start acting in the world. Then immediately what you see is that another person starts, for example, looking at what you are doing. And we very often have these, these, these networks where two people are working on something and they both look at what the other person is doing. And then you sort of, you grasp what is going on by interacting, not just with the situation, but you're also interacting with the way the other person is interacting with the situation. So you get some kind of collaborative or participatory sense making. Mm. And that is a coupling that at some point can become stronger than the individual contributions. So when you get into the flow and you, I mean, I think this happens everywhere in conversations, in work, in everyday situations, but there it's often very hidden. But there is, of course, typical examples where you immediately recognize it, like how jazz musicians create the flow of the music in, in, in the improvisation, right? There, you know, this is a well-known example or two dancers that dance together and you know about dancing, right? So so when, mm. when dancers dance together in, and, and it's, it's improvised or there's some kind of freedom there, how do they respond to each other? And if if the sense making is about, okay, how do we understand this music and how does that translate to the movements that we make how does that lead to how if the performance is the is the sense that's being made mm. then you can say well it's very much participatory sense making where i really respond very directly to the the movements of the other person and they are responding to me so it's more than just back and forth right it's a coupling process yeah. that starts to emerge from that and yeah i find that very fascinating and do you think this could extend beyond just humans and other humans, like a person and their pet dog or so, participatory sentiment? Definitely with animals. Definitely with animals. I think it could. It's interesting because I need to think about that much more. I, I don't have a ready-made answer because what I'm thinking about in the back of my mind is there is some sense in which this system works because you are you can automatically relate to the other already. Mm -hmm because you have already this shared understanding. So it's not just you and me interacting in, with verbal and nonverbal cues and then creating a sense-making coupling. Mm. There's This can only happen within a world, what the phenomenologists call a world or a life world. And this life world is already a shared history of practices and background knowledge and things, and also physically the space, right? Mm. right? So for a dog, my living room is probably his life world is very different. Yeah. For one thing, the smell, right? So I've noticed I don't have dogs, but I have cats. And I've noticed that my cats, sometimes they do things that for me are completely unintelligible. I, they respond completely weird to one another. Like as if the other cat, I mean, they are siblings and they've brought up together. They sleep together, like physically together. And then at some point, suddenly they start treating the other as a as an enemy but like a real enemy they they get mistaken like who's this other mm. cat and we cannot understand this right why does that happen and i found out it has to do with smell so for example if one of the cats has been taken to the vet and comes mm. back and smells medical and and vet like then the other cat is like totally refusing <laughs> that cat and, yeah. and you know but but we are much more visual, so we don't even see that. Right? We we are not in that life world. Between people, 
of course, there can also be a tremendous mismatch because people, human beings, we don't have just one world. Yeah. I don't know about cats if they have separate worlds. Like maybe they have the outside world and the inside world, or maybe they have the I'm now with humans world, or I'm now chasing a mouse world. Maybe that's different worlds to them. But humans have a lot of worlds, right? And then if you are brought up or, or, or in one world, like a culture or a particular role that you're in, and you've been very much invested in that for a while, and then you suddenly meet somebody who's in a completely different world. It can almost be like a cat meeting a dog, <laughs> and, uh, you know, really not understanding it. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that the thing with your cats reminded me of a previous episode I did with Dr. Elena Hersky-Douglas, and she focuses on animal-computer interaction. Ah. And she was imagining what internet for dogs could look like. And she said, you know, if we do want to design an internet for dogs, maybe you have to be able to smell. Like, maybe it doesn't yeah. have to be so visual. How, how would dogs want to surf the internet? And what would they use it for? Like, smelling all their friends from one place? Or what would it be like? But, yeah. But it's a, it's a weird... That, this is... this. Maybe this is too big a, big a leap of thought, but technology is very fascinating in that sense that technology itself also is part of these live worlds, right? So one, one aspect of technology is that in principle, then it really only functions within that whole network of relations of, of, which are not all technical, but also the, the laws, the habits, the, the knowledge that, that people have, which is part of what we do in formal education and schooling and so on. The invention of the, the idea of the computer as an information processing of the idea of computation, of representation, all of that was in place. Mm. And then somebody said, hey, let's, let's hook up these machines together and create the internet. And, and so normally speaking, I would say it only functions there, right? Yeah. Now the thing is, the internet is just a thing. So you can just grab it and just go and just throw it to dogs and it does things, right? <laughs> Probably, but you can, technology can also in that sense, really be a disruption and you can throw it into somebody's world, which I find fascinating. Yeah. But you should not, I mean, what you should not do is make the mistake to think that you're basically giving the dogs the same that you that you give to the human. She talked about that as well, about how she does animal-computer interaction, but she also has to always think, like, we will never really know how they are experiencing it. We can only observe how they experience it and decide what that might mean for them. But it's, you can't, it's really hard to design for animals with an understanding of what the animal will experience, actually. Yes, and then if you take an artifact, more artifact-oriented view, that means that it's not just about not knowing what what how they experience it, but that also in the same t that's the same thing as saying we have no idea what it really is yeah. for them, right? So there's if you make an artifact, there's maybe at least three three beings that it is, right? Three ways in which the artifact is. It mm -hmm. is a thing for the designer. It says here is it. I made it. Here is the thing. I hold it in my hand. Then there's the thing for if it's in use for within a practice and where it was developed also with that purpose and so on and how it got appropriated by, mm. by all the people. You, and then over 10. So what is the what is the smartphone for us? And then as a disruption, I throw the smartphone into a fish pond and I start to look <laughs> at what do the fish do with it? And then then it's something else again. Right. And yeah. we have no idea what it is then. Right? We, <laughs> no. we call it smartphone, but that's that's it's nothing to do with smart and phone for fish. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Now I want to move a little bit also to your work 
that you're currently doing on diversity computing. I thought this was also really interesting for this podcast, just because this idea of normal within humans is something that comes up a lot. And now people are discussing a lot. And I feel like design always used to be situated around this sort of normal human, like also how most scissors were right-handed for a long time. And then people started making left-handed scissors later on. But I thought that was also kind of an interesting connection to beyond human or beyond what we assumed to be normal human. So could you tell us a little bit about diversity computing and what that is and what work you are currently doing? Yeah, sure. So maybe a good segue into that is that I read this book called The End of Average by Todd Rose. And that was about, there was a story in there how at, at the very first beginnings of psychology got asked to measure up all the soldiers. I think in England, I'm not sure. And he measured up all the soldiers and then he calculated an average height of the soldier. Until that point, the average height of all the soldiers in the UK would just be a descriptive, a statistic, right? It's mm -hmm. just an objective, factual summary number of all the actual heights of these soldiers. But before you know it, that kind of number, that average becomes an objective in the sense of it becomes a goal to aspire mm. to. And if you then are too high, too long or too short, then suddenly you are a problem, right? But, yeah. but there's nothing in the, in the heights of people, there's nothing intrinsically that would say that the mean is the, is the, is the best thing. There's also nothing intrinsically said that you should, that taller is better than shorter. Why? I mean, yeah, well, maybe you could make some kind of evolutionary argument about why, but, but if you look at all the animals on the planet, we have very short ones, small ones, big yeah. ones, and they all survive. And so there's no intrinsic reason why, why the height matters. So, so you invent this, you, you just start to measure all kinds of people on a variable, and then you just calculate the mean, and suddenly you have a kind of normative before you know it, you have a normative judgment. The problem is that a lot of technology, of course, make use of those averages. We design for groups, mm -hmm. right? So what, what most people sort of want, like, can deal with, understand, perceive, that's what we design. That's what we tune or tailor the design to. And I do, I fully understand. I mean, in practice, I mean, it means you get the, the biggest heap mm. of everyone. But what do you do with the leftovers? <laughs> I, so I have problems with it. So I struggle with it. I don't. I don't have the answer of what designers should do. Mm -hmm. But at least I'm. I'm trying to design things that are that sort of push a, a bit against this idea of normality as being the, the goal. I have a lot of problems with people who say this is how we do things around here, mm. <laughs> <laughs> or what you do it doesn't fit or it's not appropriate. Then, yeah. then I think, well, if somebody does something that's not appropriate, then that's actually in a, a, a nice way to reflect on our own norms. It's mm. always a mirror. I find that more, much more interesting function <laughs> of looking at outlier mirror. Now I'm digressing a bit because, of course, we need to talk about diversity computing. So. Diversity computing is literally to try and, and create interactive technologies that help people interact with each other in this kind of diversity sense-making that, that we were talking about. So connect to the other hmm. precisely in situations where you are very different from each other and maybe not average hmm. or, or just assuming that, that nobody's average, that, that there's just, yeah. it's just saying, there's going to be no standard social norms for how we should interact with each other. There's just individuals. And so 
every two individuals that that want to interact with each other need to figure out how to do that. And maybe we can help people connect. Well, some people say, oh, I have no problems with that. I, all my friends I connect easily to. So maybe they were in the same group. Maybe you stay very close to what you know. But if there's situations in which you need to and want to sort of get in touch with and really get in connection with somebody who's really not in your average group, then these technologies might come to the rescue. Yeah. Or I'm researching what exactly is technology doing and how can we make sure that the technologies and products are not re-emphasizing the norms of the average, mm. but but enabling every individual person on that in that collection to just connect to everybody else without any appeal to the average. So mm. I'm working a lot with autistic people. And so to make it very concrete, you can imagine the concrete case of an autistic child sitting with a non-autistic child or parent or, or a teacher. Mm. And then what you often see happening is that, I mean, so there's, there's often going to be problems in social interaction. In, so the two people don't understand each other well. And, and this leads to frustration, anger, can lead to frustration, anger, anxiety, practical problems being sent out of the classroom, not finishing the school year mm -hmm. and so on. So it's good that we do something about that. Now, many people try to do something about that, but then the model that they use to do something about it is often to say, okay, so there's the autistic and, as an, and, and the autistic child is causing the problem because they have an autistic brain. And because of their autistic brain, they, they behave well, sorry to say it, they behave wrong. Mm -hmm. And so they should in some way be corrected, right? And then you have the people that are really not empathic at all and then and, and say like, uh, they should just be punished harder and so on. <laughs> well, most people have left that model. But now, mm -hmm. but even within a sort of healthcare therapy kind of model, uh, it's still about trying to teach the child social skills they need that are appropriate for functioning mm. in a normal way in the classroom, in interaction with teacher and other kids and so on. Now, I immediately get triggered by that kind of formulation because it puts all the weight on the child to adapt yeah. to that norm. And then, for example, you have a social robot that teaches a child to, to, train, to train the autistic child to look you in the eye mm. for a conversation. Because, well, that's really important for the nonverbal <laughs> communication. We need to look each other in the face and see each other's facial expression. Well, for one thing, there's many cultures where that is actually not the norm at all. Especially mm. not if children would look to teachers. They would not look them in the eye because it would be disrespectful. So that's, that's one thing already. It's a Western mm. opinion about what is good for social interaction. But secondly, it just happens to be the case that autistic Children, because of the way their brain is, their way of information processing is such that looking another person in the eye, which is a very intense form of social information coming in, somebody's facial expression, it's just very intense to them. And then they get scared by it or frightened. Yeah. So they, they'd rather decide to look at the nice purple dots on your shoes, because that <laughs> is something they can hold on to while you are speaking way too fast. So they are, have to concentrate really hard on processing the words that you say. Yeah. Then also the facial expression is just too much. So they, they hook on to something and then the teacher says, look at me when I'm speaking to you. Well, and then everything goes wrong. So yeah, I, I'm saying let's, let's try find out what is it that each of these two partners in the conversation actually need mm. in, in, in to what extent they can, can they adapt to each other? 
And let's definitely not look at the general norm or the convention or the appropriate social rules that that are you know written in these old 1950s books of how you should behave let's let's first of all get rid of that because that's just a third factor that is getting in the way let's just say there's a teacher there's a child what is going on there and how can we help them make contact and i think good teachers always do try to do that in the end yeah and therapists as well i know many therapists who in that sense are sometimes in a conflict they have the method that they have to apply oh autism well then this is the training this is the method mm. this is the therapy but i mean to my mind any good therapist at some point also puts the book away i would it would be fascinating if there would be technology that could help you with that it would be a completely different kind of technology than yeah. robots that train you skill like <laughs> i think this is also interesting in terms of designing for more than just two humans together because i think this makes so much sense is just seeing each person in an interaction is just like an individual that is its own individual that's not necessarily based on the person they're speaking to or anything else but also when we interact with nature or anything else so when you design tools to engage with things that it's more that there's two things working together and something in the middle and not you doing extracting from nature or extracting from the people around you with a tool which I think also feels like that more and more when you're behind the screens and you're getting information constantly it always feels like technology is there for you to extract from all the people also around you and everything and it's much more one way but this kind of technology to mediate between two individual entities that are both yeah. trying to yeah that's interesting so that so i'm of course in that sense maybe an old fashioned humanist who is always i'm mostly interested in in the human being but i totally go with you there and when you talk about for example, digital information, it mediates between me and something else, but it, it largely does it in one very specific way. Namely, it represents that other thing in mm. digital form. And that works well for a lot of things like solving technical problems or having stored data or information, thing, eh? stuff that is already information to begin with. Yeah. But if you want to sort of get in touch with the river or something i i for example i i'm I'm also always quite skeptical about oh we need to be more in touch with nature so Mm. here's a here's a video projector simulating the river (laughs) in the office building (laughs) and you have the sounds of the yeah you know i i have issues with that and it's just intuitive but it it has to do with with this notion of representation i guess i think so the map is not the territory the representation is not the thing mm-hmm. technology can be used to contact the thing but then it's more like a channel then it's more like a tool yeah. or a channel through which you engage with the thing but i don't think when I, when i when i sit in an office space and the river is flowing on the wall and i hear the sounds of water i don't think i'm engaging with nature at all <laughs> i just i just don't think that's the I think that's something else I'm engaging. I'm it's sounds, movement, and visual stimuli, and maybe I'm engaging with my own memory of rivers and my own yeah. sort of more conceptual knowledge of and so on. I'm fascinated by technologists who do all these projects, and then I think, well, when you when you stop working and you go on holiday and you go to the actual river and so on, you must immediately 
feel it, right? Yeah. That it's like, it's not just a little bit different, but it's like something completely different. So <laughs> let's not try it. Why are we trying that? Yeah. So to finish a little bit, the last question, when designing in the future, because now a lot of people talk about, like, we've been focused on human-centered design, and now people are using many other terms like life-centered yeah. design or more than human design or humanity-centered design. How do you see that? Or what is your preference when designing things that, of course, are still for humans to use? But what else should we be taking into account, maybe, that we haven't oh, been so yeah, far? So I, I think I can only give concrete examples, because once you generalize, you get into trouble again, right? When mm. you start to theorize in abstract terms about it. So rivers, animals, the planet at large, ecosystem, that all really needs to be taken into account, because it co-defines us. It already co-defines us to begin with. It's just a better mm -hmm. understanding of who we are and what is our position in the network of things. So to think in that networked way is very relevant and good and should be done. And you can call it life-centered design or more than new design. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm okay with that. I also really think it's a very good thing that we don't see ourselves anymore as the, the old traditional enlightenment project of rational minds that are mm. conquering the world and, and mm. then using the entire planet in order to produce knowledge and goods and money and, and dominate everything around us with our knowledge or something like that. I'm, I'm really, so if that's humanism, if that's human centeredness, then I'm, I'm not human centered at all. Mm. I wasn't thinking about humans like that way anyway. Yeah. But I do, but I do think the the last ten years or so or so have it did change. I it wasn't a topic for me. So in that sense, that's really good that there's this new wave of thinking where a lot of some basic assumptions about what who are we and what are we doing are now challenged in that way. Mm -hmm. What I have more problems with is let's say putting the robots and the household appliances on in one category with the rivers and mm. the rainforest, and then saying, oh yeah, there's humans, but we should now think about more than humans, such as rivers, rainforest, and robots, and mm. my Roomba, <laughs> or robot, and I don't know, a building, or yeah. no, because, why? Because these technologies are made by us, and they are largely, most of the current technologies are created in the image of the old-fashioned idea mm. of humans as trying to conquer and dominate the world. Yeah. So a lot of these technologies are very dominating, oppressive, problematic technologies. So they are artifacts. They are effects in, and I don't mean, yeah, there are things, artifacts, but I mean, they are the exponents of the way of thinking that we try to get rid of. Mm. And just saying, oh, but now I'm going to take the Roomba in my heart and, and treat it <laughs> like, and, and ask it what it wants and, and, and incorporate it in. No, that's... <laughs> <laughs> the Roomba is the representation of what we want to get rid of. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Lots to think about. I think my main takeaways was with your diversity computing project. I think that's really interesting to not have a norm in this sense, but within humans and then also beyond that, just how do you approach design when there isn't a norm and what does that look like and what could that look like? I think that's like a nice question to generally think about while doing any project in the future is, am I looking at this as a norm and is it possible to look at it any other way? And also, yeah, I think, yeah, if that's the, the one takeaway, I would be really happy because <laughs> I, yeah, that is close to my heart. Yeah. And also, yeah, what you just said, 
with separating what more than human is and what why it matters and how different things that are more than human are still different and it's not just humans and the rest of the world <laughs> it's like two separate things but that there are many smaller categories and we are also one of the categories and each has to be engaged with in its own way but also together in like an ecosystem kind of format where everything has its own role within that which i think is also nice so your starting question was very good what is human but the answer is just the whole discussion it's not yeah no you can't start with the definition but it's just we need to keep yeah. reflecting on that yeah as we go yeah thank you so much and to finish do you have an open question maybe that you would like our listeners to think about yeah so i thought one of one in the beginning and i think i'm going to stick with it it's a very basic and open one but designers and design researchers very often have the idea that they have to think about what is really important so yeah if you want to take that kind of participatory approach seriously my question would be what would what what should designers and and design researchers maybe also be working on in the in the next 10 years what what is really what is really the big problem here that that needs to be addressed mm -hmm. so i would be interested nice i will also think for the last season we had a mural board where we would put all the questions and people could answer them i think i will continue it even though there's not yeah. always a lot of action there but no. if you have a an answer to the question <laughs> feel free to drop it on the mural board and thank you again yella for joining me today if listeners want to find you or your work where can they go yeah well they can, can go to my website and there's also a website of the design your life project that we're doing and so i think those those places are the best i'm not very active anymore on social media mm. i have the mastodon thing and i think i follow three people and never look at it yet <laughs> <laughs> I I actually hope to keep it that way because <laughs> social media is driving me crazy. Yeah, fair. Uh, thank you so much again for joining me and have a good day. Thank you, Chetana. It was nice talking to you. Thank you for your yeah. time.